Tuesday, May 2nd, 1 p.m. Mickey Patrick was a dealer, a snitch, a peddler of information. His clothes were as cheap as his reputation. So when he phoned me with some information to sell, I was surprised that he wanted to meet me in the heart of Chicago's shishi high fashion district. What started out as a mild surprise culminated in stark raving terror. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak in the case that we're calling the Trevi Collection. This episode originally aired January 24th, 1975. It was directed by Don Weiss and written by Rudolph Borchette. This was the 14th episode of the original series. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me as always is my co-host, Mr. Chris Dashew. Hi there. I'm here to talk Kolchak and... What a surprise we're talking about the original show again. Yay us. Go us. Oh, I'm so glad to be back to this. You know, it's like a chaser, right? Like you drink something and then you're like, oh, God, Jägermeister, what have I done? Get me some Diet Coke. And you're like, mmm, the taste of Diet Coke. That's what the original Kolchak has become for us on this podcast. The Night Stalker 2006 is like Malort, that like awful Chicago-only bitter liqueur and it's like but then we gotta chase it with some diet coke like that's what this original show is it's like you know exactly what you're gonna get it rarely deviates but it's a good palate cleanser for the really inconsistent remake bitter pill that we swallow once every two months with the original show early on it wasn't bad but it kind of devolved into this weird mess but when you have this show i mean you know there's only six episodes left uh, not including this this episode of the original show. So we're in the home stretch here. We effectively have a half a year worth of episodes on the original show. While I haven't liked some episodes, they've all been rather, if you could plot them on a chart, they've all been rather consistent. I mean, there have been some that are a little bit higher up than others, but I mean, they've been all been pretty consistent, I would say. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I would say that this episode is kind of emblematic of that because it's a little bit schizophrenic at times. There are some pretty solid moments to it, and then sometimes it dips off a little bit. But for the most part, it stays the course. Yeah, there are some parts in this episode that are really really bizarre. (laughs) I didn't know what to think of them in the moment, because it almost seemed like the director, Don Weiss, behind the camera was like, just overact. Just completely overdo it and make it ridiculous. And... Boy, <laughs> let me tell you, if anyone has ever taken to task the the director's direction, I guess they really went for it. Because there are some scenes in this episode that are astoundingly over the top. Yeah, we'll get there. But this is set in the world of fashion, which is strange. Though it's only by proxy, because really it's Carl Kolchak trying to meet one of his snitches, Mickey Patchek who just happens to be at this fashion show. And Mickey is going to be hooking up Carl with some information about this whole like labor extortion ring that's going on. And that's the thread using fashion as my pun here, the thread that Carl is following, but then he kind of gets mixed up in this whole fashion world, fashion model kind of stuff. And, Though he keeps coming back to the extortion stuff. By the way, this episode 
was brought to you by the letter M. I just want to read off some of our characters here. So I've already talked about Mickey Petchek. The rival snitch that Carl deals with is Murray Vernon. We have, of course, Madame Trevi. Our main model that Carl interacts with is Madeline. And then we even have another model in here whose name starts with the letter M. She's the one that gets scalded, Melody Sedgwick. Watching this, and I'm writing down these names, I'm like, what the hell is going on? There's one woman named Ariel, but otherwise, so many of these people had M's in their names or began with M's. I know Madam is a title, but it was just a little nuts, especially with the two snitches both starting with the M's. And and that made it very confusing for me because I was like, I thought that guy died. But no, it's another snitch whose name starts with an M. You're talking about, you know, Madame Trevi and all these kind of like the the character of Kolchak getting kind of by proxy thrown into this episode because he's doing one thing and then something else kind of happens to his informant. Do you know what this episode reminded me of? And it came out two years before what I'm thinking of. This reminds me so much of the original Suspiria. Like, it hits on those same kind of notes. Like, it's in, like, as opposed to being in the world of dance, it's in the world of fashion. It just happens to be about witches. It's kind of hard not to draw parallels a little bit. No, I totally see that. When you say that, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's definitely some Suspiria vibes going on here. And I had to look it up. This came out two years before the original Suspiria. Look, I'm not saying that Argento used this as a influence, because I doubt he did. But... It's a little funny that it's about a kind of a world that is female centric and it just happens to be about rival witches in this world of fashion. It is coincidental that Suspiria is similar, but I don't think that they're like directly influenced, if that makes sense. But that's what it reminded me of in my head when I was watching this episode. Maybe I thought slightly about Suspiria when... We saw the cat at the beginning, and I was thinking of familiars. Before I even knew that this was about witchcraft, I was thinking about familiars and stuff. But I think the young boy is a familiar in Suspiria, not necessarily an animal familiar. Well, and the thing that really made me think of Suspiria was the cat attacking the woman's face, and then the other model getting burned alive in the shower. All I could think was, like, this is very, like kind of hitting on those like notes of like Suspiria where it's like the rivals are being taken down to make a path for the the antagonistic witch played by Lara Parker from obviously from Dark Shadows. It's one of those things where it's like it's very reminiscent of that but not in a way that feels derivative obviously. I suspected Lara Parker for a little bit but they do a good job of painting Madame Trevi as being that older witch. I mean, like Suspiria, she reminded me of the the head of the household, um, the head of the dance studio when it came to that. And so when it switches and it ends up that she's the one who is limiting the power of Madeline, who is actually the real bad witch, then it's like, oh, okay, that, that kind of makes sense. So I, I thought it was a good red herring. My issue was, is because I knew who was playing the character, I automatically, in my mind, assumed that she was the villain. Because, I mean, like, if you think back to, like, a lot of the shows from the 70s, when you have a a big-name actress or actor at the time on the show, they often play, like, a major part in the episode. And so, I mean, like, think of episodes of, like, Star Trek or um, Columbo or, I mean, most shows that had, like, you know, people would come in and be, like, guests 
that were doing other things at the time, they were often like the bad guys. I mean, they even do it now with like CSI and NCIS, all those shows. They have like actors from other places that are known come in and they're a, a, a determining factor in the outcome of the plot of the episode. And so I was like, well, I guess it's probably her. But like you said, they do a really good job of giving you a lot of misdirection. Yeah, that's why I kept thinking Bernie Koppel was going to have more <laughs> stuff right, to right. do, but he doesn't even speak in the first scene that he's in. I'm just like, well, why doesn't he have any lines? And it's like later on, he finally does get to speak, but not very much. I mean, this was a few years before The Love Boat, though. No, you're right, because again, he's like the other kind of big name in the episode, and it's a little surprising that he's essentially given very little, almost nothing to do throughout the entire episode. The way that the episode begins with Murray up uh, in the, I guess it's the second floor of wherever this fashion show is, and he's taking all these photos of the new designs that Madame Trevi has come up with, that section, when the mannequins come alive, I thought was pretty good. I mean, mannequins are creepy to me, and that kind of worked for me. Another deep cut. Do you know what that reminded me of? Have you ever seen the horror film tourist trap oh yeah we actually did an episode of that on the projection booth that's what that reminded me of right because like at the beginning of tourist trap it's that same weird kind of thing where like the mannequins are coming to life that's what it reminded me of because all of a sudden like the mannequins just start moving and it's like human actors mixed in with the mannequins too which doesn't work as well (laughs) as i think they thought it did but i was just kind of waiting for kim cattrall to show up Had Kim Cattrall shown up, this would have been a far superior episode. Right, yeah, and then uh, James Spader and Andrew McCarthy are in there as well. That would have, man, this would have been a a much weirder episode, wouldn't it? Mannequin is a good movie, but it does have its faults. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of faults, I have to say that Madame Trevi's fashion sense is not that great. As I was watching all those earth tone, the color palette that she was using i was completely reminded of gretchen jones who i still think should never have come anywhere near the top two much less one project runway i don't know at all what you're talking about she robbed mondo that's all i can say she robbed him mike i have never known less about what you're talking about than i do right now those fashions that madame trevi was rocking in this were exactly those kind of designs that Gretchen used to win Project Runway. I have to say, I was truly incredulous about how this judging was going, and I was miffed. So I wasn't exactly user-friendly with dear, lovely, adorable Heidi, and she asked, who do you want to have win? Why do you care? I'm not a judge. She said, no, who do you want to have win? And I said, well, Mondo, of course. I'm happy for Gretchen. But... I do like the idea behind this episode, but I think this episode gets muddled towards the end when we have like Kolshak going and talking to the, the, you know, the professor who's the expert. And then he goes to the coven because I don't understand the coven scene. I watched it like three times and were they trying to like fuck with Kolchak, but then they weren't fucking with him because lara parker is there or like what is like what's happening yeah i think it's a little bit of both because they want carl to go destroy this box of stuff that madame trevi has but he's under the impression they're telling him that she's a bad witch 
and that he needs to go and find this box in her closet and destroy the stuff that's inside of there. Yeah, he's being led down this primrose path by this woman, Griselda, who is, um, I mean, I mostly know her from, uh, I think she was in uh, episodes of Mary Tyler Moore show, um, Priscilla Morrill, who I really like her look and stuff. I thought she was pretty great. And um, yeah, she is leading him there. And so we don't even know that uh, Lara Parker is part of the coven until after they tell Carl this stuff, they pull this kind of like trickery to scare him away and then they just have a big laugh. So yeah, I thought at first that they were just fucking with him, but then when he goes to Madame Trebby's and finds the box, I was like, okay, I guess they weren't. But yeah, that's where we get the reveal of Lara Parker as being part of this coven. And that's the first instance that we get of her crazy laugh. I guess they're bad, too, with Lara Parker. Yeah, I guess so. It doesn't make it very clear. And that's, again, it's kind of par for the course at this point with Kolchak. You kind of know that you're going to get a interesting premise, and then they're probably going to muck it up somehow later in the episode. Because that seems to kind of be what happens every time. That laugh is something else. She reminds me of the mom who's laughing at her kids smashing cockroaches in Starship Troopers. Everyone's doing their part. Are you? The war effort needs your effort. At work, at home, in your community. Wow, deep cut. Holy shit. It's crazy to me in these episodes that they have these cool premises like Spanish Moss Murders the paramount feet and then they have like well you can kill him with the fucking stick like what 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 it's so goofy that you take this really cool interesting premise like in this episode you've got this this witch and this other witch and it's like well all you have to do is dunk her head in the water like oh come on i mean the shot of kolchak drowning a woman aside which hasn't aged well and not sure it aged well. I mean, not sure it was very PC to begin with. Really weird ending to the episode. Well, what's worse is that to defeat a witch, to take away her power, you have to accuse her in public. So all he has to do is run out into the street and then be like, she, she's a witch. After her face is blue because he had her head in a, like a tub of like a barrel of water that was just, was that water? Or was that dye? What the hell was that? It was a blueing agent, so yeah, just a die. Yeah, her like face is blue, and then she gets taken to an insane asylum. <laughs> Cole Jax is like laughing to himself at the end. He's like, and she's never going to get out. Ha ha ha! It's like, oh Jesus Christ! Yeah, pretty morbid. You're a pretty sick bastard, Cole Jack. You know that? I do like the scene with him and the two goons, which again is incongruous with this episode. It's that whole idea of the um, uh, extortion stuff going on and the two goons are trying to get the one guy's notes. And <laughs> when they're debating about uh, how many hours Kolchak has. You have it over here tonight. No, no, no. no I, I, tonight. I need at least four days. I give you 24 hours. No, no, I couldn't possibly do it in less than 72. 48. Into 72. 48. Hey, hey, you guys nearly got a deal. Split the difference. Make it 60 hours. 
Okay. The day after tomorrow night. Oh, like they tell us down at police headquarters? Yeah. Don't try to leave the city. Oh, no, no. Vincenzo and Carl have that whole thing. He's like, how'd you come up with 60 hours, Carl? It's like, oh, uh, through arbitration. (laughs) Again, that's like a B-plot in this episode that I don't think it worked very well. Vincenzo going nuts to the point where he's like having to check his pulse was pretty intense, though. Well, I mean, the thing that I liked most about Vincenzo was talking about his cousin Rocco, who does Venetian blinds. Oh, God, that was awesome. <laughs> and Kolchak goes, uh, cousin Rocco with the blinds. Oh, that's a great cover. <laughs> you're such a prick, Kolchak. Do you know this? Do you know that you wake up every day and you're just an insufferable prick? I can never hear the word coven without thinking of Mark Borchard in American movies saying coven, because... <laughs> Because coven sounds too much like oven. And I noticed Carl even said coven at one point, but then he like changed it to coven within like the next line. Yeah, he said something, something, this coven. It's like, oh, what are you talking about? The coven. An oven of witches? What? It's weird that this show really, within the 40-minute episode, it goes in like the highs and lows, like back-to-back scenes. And it's it's such... It's such inconsistent writing, and we've come to expect that at this point, but it's almost like the episodes that are better are the ones that have less of the incongruous writing. And like these like weirdo scenes that make no sense are like, oh, what, what, God, what? It was the other Richard Keel episode where he's like, if you take a picture of him, he dies. It's kind of par for the course because uh, Rudolf Borchardt, he had written a lot of these episodes. He wrote The Ripper. They have been, they are, they will be. So the UFO episode, the energy eater, this one, and then he's got one more coming up. I believe we liked the Ripper, though the Ripper was pretty similar to the original Night Stalker. Very derivative. Yeah, but the rest of these? It's almost not even its own idea. It's almost like, uh, so as a vampire in that one, just make it something that's well known. And, you know, the Energy Eater, that's your favorite uh, Machi Manito character in there. <laughs> oh, it's pronounced Machi Mantel. Yeah, I would say that of the episodes that Rudolph Borschert has done so far, this is probably the best one. Yeah, it could be. It might be. It's the only one without a invisible monster. The Machi Manito was invisible, right? Machi Manito was invisible. The Ripper was not, though. But yeah, the UFO definitely was. But again, if we're talking, if we're taking the Ripper, I would say we take the Ripper out of kind of the conversation because it's a riff on the vampire episode or not the vampire episode, but the Night Stalker in a way that is just, eh, it's okay. But it's not like Mr. R-A-N-G that's like very different and like does something like completely nuts. It's just like, okay, so you've got a thing that's invincible that Kolchak won't actually get a chance to kill. Okay, got it. Yeah, and I have to say that the Youth Killer might be a little close to the Night Strangler, but we'll have to see once we get there. Well, and again, I mean, I I, I enjoyed this episode. It's just there's some there's some stuff like the like it always feels like, and I don't know how you feel about this. It always feels like they back themselves into a corner with how Kolchak is going to defeat the monster. Like we haven't really seen him. We've seen him kill the monster a couple times, but for the most part, they always get away. And it's like, come come on. Every time can't be the same. I forgot that when her mind snaps and she goes into the asylum, he also says that she has a rare medieval pox. What? So she's like hundreds of years old, too? No, it might be just that the 
the witchcraft stuff has kind of come back to bite her in the ass. Maybe she's hundreds of years old, but I doubt it. That was the way I interpreted it. But again, it's like it was also like a, a very one-off line. It's like, well, she has a pox now. Why not? I mean, again, they're not going to explain anything anyways. and They're just going to start throwing stuff out there. So why not? Yeah, I liked also, I thought another good red herring was when Carl was getting run down by the car. And I thought it was the uh, the B-plot ring its head but then it actually ends up being the a plot and that when he looks up in the window he sees madame trevi it was like oh okay that's kind of cool so it's almost like two red herrings in one with that it's not a poorly written episode they do try to interweave the b plot into the a plot i don't think the b plot is nearly as interesting as they thought it was going to be but the actors in this episode like the you know the the guest actors are pretty great you get some really good interaction with carl and vincenzo which is always fun uh you even get a little bit of updike in the episode which is always great uh miss emily is mentioned like off screen you see her but then like she's also mentioned off screen as well she gives kolchak a lead i think later on uh so it's kind of got all the the good stuff like the things that i like about this show like updike some good vincenzo and carl back and forth an interesting villain and again i think this is one of the few episodes we've seen where there's like an actual kind of twist like a full-blown a full-blown twist in the episode yeah i would recommend this one i think that it was pretty good though i think we've made it very apparent that this is uneven with a lot of trepidation i'm looking forward to the next episode which is chopper because i have a real love-hate relationship with Robert Zemeckis. And I guess I guess maybe I have a love relationship with Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, and I have a hate relationship with Bob Zemeckis. Because, man, oh man, do I not like a lot of the movies that he's put out since Death Becomes Her, maybe? You're not, you're not on a first-name basis with Zemeckis enough to call him Bob Zemeckis? Well... Okay, Mr. Zemeckis. Every time I like, every time I've spoken with someone who's worked with him, they're always like Bob Zemeckis. I'm like, oh, it must be cool to be on a first name basis with someone like that. I guess. Okay, I didn't call him Bobby at least. Bobby Zemeckis, Billy Friedkin. Is that similar? Billy Friedkin. Hey, Billy. I did that recently too, didn't I? (laughs) You do. You. I think on the Twilight Zone. Uh, show that we do you're like billy friedkin's like what the fuck mike you don't know him that well i don't know anyone know him that well billy friedkin <laughs> I- i'll tell you this much i have no absolute no idea what the next episode is going to be other than it's a headless motorcycle rider uh but in regards to bob gale and robert zemeckis zemeckis has done some really good stuff done done in past tense I mean, this is the week that Maron Call is coming out, or not the documentary. Again, we were talking before we started recording about documentaries versus narrative films. There was a documentary, like, what, two years ago about Maron Call, and now there's the Steve Carell live-action film, which I was kind of interested in until I heard that Robert Zemeckis was directing it. Oh, I don't even know what it's about. Uh, yeah, I didn't know about it and uh, what it was about until uh, I saw Graham Norton last week. And I was just like, oh, okay, this sounds cool. And then he's like, yeah, I'm Bob Zemeckis. I was like, hmm, pass. Okay. For me, like you said, I don't even like Death Becomes Her very much. I mean, I saw it a long time ago, so maybe that's why. But 
I mean, 94 was Forrest Gump, which I know a lot of people really have a love for. But then you have 97 with Contact, and I think that's where I think that's where the shine came off <laughs> of Zemeckis. It was off for me with Gump. I can't stand Gump. I mean, I don't like that movie either, but I will concede that there is a good performance from Tom Hanks in that yeah, movie. I think there's an okay performance from Gary Sinise when he's not chewing up the scenery. Yeah. Contact is is not good. That's why I, I completely understand and I'm on board with your trepidation going into the next episode because this is the first thing that they've ever written together, right? Yeah. I mean, they probably wrote some unproduced stuff. I've been trying to get a hold of Bob Gale for years now because i would love to do a podcast about used cars because that is to me prime gale and zemeckis i mean they had that really great offbeat subversive sense of humor things like i want to hold your hand were great i can't say 1941 was great but then of course the classic of all classics back to the future was fantastic yeah and that movie needs to be remade because if anything's right for a remake it's Back to the Future. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> a collective a collective group of people just turned this podcast right off. <laughs> I hope no one thinks that we think that. Oh my god. I, I'm with you. I don't know what the next episode's gonna be like, but the story is by the two of them, and then the teleplay is David Chase and Steve Fisher. That'll be fun because David Chase is also great. Also, I've been trying to get a hold of that guy for since we started doing this podcast, but so far, no luck. Shucks. Well, that's a bummer. Maybe one of these days we'll get a guest again on this <laughs> podcast. On this little podcast of ours. With our next episode, we are not going back to 2005 slash 2006. We will be staying in 1975 and we'll be talking about the chopper. So I want to thank everybody for listening. I definitely want to thank John Walker for doing our theme music. And I want to thank everybody who's gone over to iTunes and left all those reviews for us. Those have been fantastic. Thank you so much for doing that. I mean, gosh, we're up to like, what, three reviews now, I think? Boy, and all of them are so positive. And all of them call you out by name as being the star of this podcast, Chris. Boy, don't they? They sure do. They almost, they, it's almost like I don't even have to be here. Chris, what is the latest and greatest over at the Culture Cast? Uh, it's a new year over at the Culture Cast. If you want to listen to me and my co host, Eric, and our uh, lovable group of guest co hosts who come by once a month or more than once a month to join us, talk about all kinds of genres, every kind of movie, we really leave no stone unturned. We're not as thorough as Mike over at the projection booth, but uh, we do talk about movies. We talk about new stuff. We talk about old stuff. So come check us out over at the Culture Cast. I also do a Tales from the Crypt podcast with a good friend of mine, Father Malone. You want to check that out over at Chronicles from the Crypt. And Mike and I and our good friend, Father Malone, we do a Twilight Zone 1985 podcast called Dreams for Sale. If you want to check that one out, head on over to TwilightZone85.com. Now that I've plugged everything that I do into the ground, where can people find you, Mike? You can find me over at the Projection Booth Podcast, which is at projectionboothpodcast.com. 
And with January coming up, it's kind of a little bit of a hodgepodge. We're doing a couple uh, Ernst Lubitsch films, and we are having our 400th episode in the month of January. And we'll be talking about the incredible film, The Ruddles, All You Need Is Cash, for our 400th episode, which is very fitting because it was actually a TV movie, which doesn't make any sense because we usually cover theatrical movies. But what are you going to do? I thought you were going to cover Aquaman for your 400th episode. Uh, no, we've already done a six-hour marathon podcast just dissecting the trailers. Yeah, we're not actually going to talk about the movie. We just talk about the trailers. Smart man. That's what gets you the clicks. You'll never believe what happens after the jump. Madeline was uncannily correct about the shoebox full of checks. Miss Emily found them as predicted, and we're about to break a large story about extortion in the garment industry. Uh, Madeline was incorrect, however, about her own glorious future. A conviction for murder could never be lodged against her, but along with her black powers went her mind. I'm told that she's to be consigned to the women's ward of Grassland State Mental Hospital. The doctors there give her little hope of ever recovering her sanity. They can't understand what caused such massive trauma. They say that the form of medieval pox which she contracted has not been seen in our world for over 500 years. It will leave permanent scars. Ah, oh, Madeline, poor Madeline. She won't even be pretty anymore. Isn't that a pity? Mm-hmm. 